Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told them this parable, or excuse me, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. This week we're looking at the second in a duo of parables in this travel section here in Luke chapter 18. And one of the benefits of working systematically through the Bible, this is what we do here, uh, this is what I do here pastoring at the First Christian Church, is we make an effort to systematically work through scriptures. Why we read the uncomfortable First Corinthians passage. We, we walk through scripture under the belief that all of God's word is inspired. It is his infallible, inerrant word given to us. And so I don't want it to, we, we preach systematically through in a very real way to protect you from my pet projects. I, I don't, I don't get to pick up some, uh, some certain theme that I like to harp on or anything like that. It's the topic for our sermon is what's next in the text. But, and so when you do that, you begin to see connections in a way that you wouldn't if you just decided, well, this week, let's talk about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But when you, when you preach through them, you begin to get a better feel as you sit here week after week, working through the text of how they all kind of fit together. And this is the second in a, a duo of parables in Luke chapter 18. And it's easy to, to miss what Paul is communicating if you were just to drop in to this second parable. You begin to ask things like, what, what, do the, what does the theme of both of these communicate to me? Luke isn't just, you know, throwing darts at a dartboard of which stories to include in his gospel. He's bringing them together to make a point. And so last week in this parable of the persistent widow, you can look right above the parable for this morning, the first of these duo of parables was the parable of the persistent widow, the lady who is not getting justice. And so she goes to the unjust judge and she pleads with him day after day for justice. And this is an unjust judge. He does not fear God, nor does he care about men. But because he's afraid of this lady giving him a black eye, and he doesn't want to get beat up by this lady. He gives her justice. And the, parable, the point of the parable is not that you have to beat God up to get your prayers answered. The point of the parable is if the unjust judge eventually will give justice, 
How much more will the just judge do what is right for those who ask him, for those who are his? It's what it says at the end of the parable, that how will he not give justice to his elect, to those who are God's He will do justly. And the first parable, the the main idea from that parable is that we get a glimpse of the character of God. That we see who he is in comparison to this unjust judge. And that our prayer life then is influenced by this realization of the character of God. As a just judge, who will do what is right? So the parable of last week was working for that we would see the character of God. Well, likewise, this parable this week is trying to shine the light on character as well. But it isn't the character of God that that is trying to be shown to us. This week, the character that is being revealed to us is trying to get us to be honest about our own character. Last week was prayer is influenced by how you see and what you see in the character of God. And this week, prayer is influenced by what you see of your own character. They, they two, they kind of fit together. What your view is of God and what your view is of yourself influencing your, how you are going to pray and how you're going to enter into this kingdom. So last week was about opening your eyes to the character of God. This week is about opening your eyes to your own character. I mean, what are the obstacles to prayer? Why do we wrestle with prayer? Why do we fail to pray? Why do you fail to pray? Why do you not pray as much? I'm just kind of making an assumption. Anyone that says, oh, yes, Darren, I pray as much as I should. I don't know anybody that ever honestly says, oh, yeah, I'm nailing that. If we don't pray, I think all of us would probably, if we're being honest, long to have an improved prayer life. What are the obstacles to your crying out to God? And... They're based in one of these two realities that these parables are fighting against. Either you are, that you are um, not crying out because you don't think God really cares. You don't think God will do what is right. What is the point of praying to God if God is far off, doesn't really care, and God doesn't do what is right? Well, that's exactly what the parable of the persistent widow is communicating to us. That the unjust judge does what is right. How much more will God do what is right? One of the main obstacles to prayer is just the belief that God will do what is right and that God cares. And if you don't think God cares, you don't think God will do what is right, you don't think God has the power to do what is right, then your prayer life becomes pretty apathetic, pretty, pretty weak. Because you don't think, you think he's more like the unjust judge than the just judge that he is. That's one obstacle to prayer. But the other obstacle to prayer beyond besides not seeing God for who he is, is overestimating your own ability. You can look at the parable of the persistent widow and see that, um, that, and, and see that God does care. The obstacle to prayer is that, that God does care about you. And you look at the parable then of this Pharisee and the tax collector, and you see that the hindrance to this man's prayer was his self-sufficiency. Hindrances to prayer, not seeing God for who he is, and thinking that you pretty, pretty much are okay on your own. The person who thinks they've got it all together, the person who thinks they can handle this, the person who's very much uh, indwelt by the American can-do spirit, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and get things done. If it's going to be, it's up to me. That person, very self-sufficient, finds themselves 
prayerless, finds themselves prayerless. Perceived self-sufficiency and self-trust are great enemies of prayer. Notice this Pharisee's prayer. It isn't really even a prayer. He shows up to pray to God and basically he just brags about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That I get. He's more uh, bringing to God his resume of how great he already is. That's the extent of this man's prayer life. All he's doing is bragging to God. He's performing religious duties, but his heart is totally unconnected from his activities and totally disconnected from the reality of his life. He's fully confident in himself. He's fully confident in himself, fully confident in his own performance. And for some people, this is exactly what they think all religious people are about. (laughs) They think that all of us from outside, if they, they look at people who are gathering in a church and what we are all doing is showing up so that we can put on display our religious righteousness. See, look at us. We show up. We go to church. We know the songs. We pray the prayers. We are putting on display our righteousness, our religious front. And for some people, that's what they think being religious and coming to church is all about is just bragging about your righteousness. And if anyone, any one of us, ever gives reason or permission or excuse for them to think that way as though it is right, God help us that we would ever be showing up to be like this Pharisee, putting on display, see how great I am, look what I'm doing, God, aren't you glad I'm here this morning? God, aren't you pleased that I am here? I, haven't I, haven't, aren't, aren't you just really glad that I'm here? As a, that is this Pharisaical mindset. Is... Is the basis of your relationship to God this idea of bringing to him, see how impressive I am, God? See all the things that I've done. Look at me. See how I've been good. See how I have really been better than old so-and-so. See how I am better than all the people who aren't here on a Sunday morning. See how I am better. I don't talk the way that they do. I am better than all these other people. This is the Pharisees' way of relating to God. In our age of self-understanding and self-affirmation, this parable is, is heresy to our modern culture. We are all about exploring yourself, understanding yourself, But you have to understand that in order to to understand yourself, you have to contrast yourself with with not yourself. In order to understand yourself and to affirm yourself, there has to be something outside that you're comparing yourself to. And so what is, you really can't understand yourself unless you have something to compare yourself to. Am I a basketball player? I'm just going to affirm it. I'm a basketball player. I am. Deny it. You know, I, I'm just, I'm just going to decide that I am. But every one of you would know, okay, Darren, here's a basketball. And we know what a basketball player is supposed to look like. And you should not miss that many shots. Or you put up, you'll say, okay, Darren, here's the rim. Here's the net. Jump and touch the net. And when I can't get off the ground hardly, you say, um, we know what a basketball player is supposed to be. And you're not it. Or say uh, you're a mother. You have, if you're calling yourself a mother, you're only able to do that in contrast to what you have as a definition of what a mother is. 
you can't just say I'm a mother and, and not have children. You know, there's, there's certain uh, definitions that must exist for you to compare yourself to. To understand yourself, there must be some standard that you're comparing yourself to. Are you a good person? Well, if the, if the um, standard is just we go get a pen and we write down what we think a good person is, every one of us probably nails that quiz because we put down all the things that we think we do that are good enough. Are you a bad person? Well, what you do is you take this list and you would take your own pen. You make a list of all the things everybody else does that you don't do. This makes a bad person. Therefore, I'm not on the bad list. I am on the good list because I've made the list. But is that what God has done? This is where the world has gone off the rails. That's what we do nowadays is I write my list of what is good and what I'm supposed to be and my list of what's bad and what I'm not supposed to be. And long as I keep on the middle of between these two lists, I'm good. Much of our self-confidence and our own goodness comes from taking our own pen and writing the rules for goodness and badness for ourselves. If your standard of good is totally subjective, which is what that is, it's quite easy to fulfill it. But what if the standard is already established? What if the standard is established not by ourselves and our opinions, but by the one who created us all? What if there is an objective standard outside of us that says, here is what is good and righteous and holy and true and perfect, and it isn't something that we've made up? Well, then we're all in trouble. If we're not the ones writing the rules, we are in trouble. Then we cannot approach God to impress him with our self-righteousness because we don't have any. God's standard has been set. Be holy as I am holy. God's standard has been set. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. All your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You may love your neighbor, but do you love them as much as you love and take care of yourself? We have these standards that God has objectively set out. Go back through our Ten Commandments series. We did a couple of summers ago of just talking about the law of God. And God brings all these things up and sets these standards. And we find them to be crushing. We find them to be crushing. And so... As we are crushed by the law, how do you approach God? Are you the self-confident Pharisee who said, I've written my own list. God, aren't you proud of me? What attitude do you have when approaching God? And this is where I really get in trouble with a lot of people who listen to me. I get lots of comments, or I, I, not lots. I've gotten comments about um, the heavy nature of, of speaking this way, of the reality of the law of God that crushes and condemns us all as sinner, sinners. We do not like to hear and be confronted with the reality of our sinfulness. And who would? I mean, it, it's, of course we don't. We do not like to be confronted with the reality of our sinfulness. We do not like to hear that we are sinners and that apart from the mercy of God, we are deserving only of His justice. Apart from the work of Christ, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That apart through this mediating work of Jesus, we all find ourselves not close to God, but far from Him and under His wrath and judgment. We are deserving of His judgment. No one likes to hear this. No one likes to hear this. It's understandable. 
But at some point, me standing up here, at some point we have to consider whether it is more important to hear what you'd like to hear or more important to hear the truth, regardless if it's what we want to hear. Is it more important to just hear what we want to hear? You know, we would all feel temporarily a lot better if I just said, write your own rules. Make your own list of good, make your own list list of bad, and then walk down the middle, stay on the good list and off the bad list, go have a good Sunday. We'd all like that a lot better, wouldn't we? I mean, that's okay, all right, Darren. Even though I think you probably would fail at that at some points. But anyway, you know, that would, that would, it would fail us. That, That would be the easy thing to hear. But so we have to ask, is that all we want to hear? Do we just want to hear what we want to hear or do we want to hear what we need to hear? Your biggest problem is not that God is unable to see the good things that you're doing. Your problem is that your sinful heart is so pervasive and so glaring to him that he cannot look away from it. He cannot unsee our sinful and corrupt nature. Paul is interesting uh, character to, to think about in regards to, to this reality uh, of the Pharisee and the sinner. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul has this great long list of all of his righteousness, right? He says, as to a Pharisee, he's faultless under the law. This is his kind of his boast in verse 5 of chapter 3. He says, he was circumcised on the eighth day. That was ritual regulations. He's done it by the book. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He's of the right people group. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless. The Apostle Paul lived to the letter of the law externally. Every rule they had at Sabbath keeping and dietary laws and all of these things, he kept them perfectly. But if you flip back to 1 Timothy we get a confession out of his mouth about how Paul saw himself. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He's writing to Timothy, saying, This saying, 1 Timothy 1, 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, Paul says, I am the foremost. I am the chief. I am the pinnacle example. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am foremost. Is Paul just full of self-hate there? I mean, do we need to get him some counseling to talk about how valuable he is and to get out of his... No, Paul, don't talk about yourself that way. You know, that's what we would do today is we would kind of just try to give him self-affirmations. We tell him, get in front of your mirror every morning and say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. We, we, we would try to give him all these affirmations. Sorry. <laughs> uh, we try to give him all these affirmations to build himself up. Paul has been given eyes to see these two realities, the greatness of the king and the greatness of his own depravity. The greatness of the king, the character of God, the holiness of God, dwelling in unapproachable light, the purity of God, the perfection of God. And in seeing how glorious and perfect God is, he then is convicted, I ain't anywhere close to this righteous God. Some, I've got 
a major problem. That's what the tax collector sees, right? The tax collector sees it. He goes up to the temple. He doesn't even approach the altar. He stays far off. He falls down on his knees. He beats his chest. God, have mercy on me as sinner. He knows it. He knows himself. He knows he's got a problem. He knows God is holy and righteous, and he is not. And therefore, apart from the mercy of God, this tax collector is in big trouble. Justification is on the line. Being made right with God is on the line. Only one of these men go home justified. See that, right? I tell you, verse 14, this man, speaking of the tax collector, went to his house justified rather than the other. It wasn't, you know, uh, one was repentant, one wasn't, but we know God brought them all in. No, only one of them is justified. And it is the man who sees himself for who he really is. A sinner in comparison to the holiness of God. Often the excuse is made why someone doesn't want to become a Christian or don't think they can become a Christian because they, they think they can't be good enough. You know, oh, that's, that's, that's for the, the people who are, who are trying to, you know, getting things together and living right. That's, that's this high bar. And I've heard it many times from people that they'll say they can't go to church because church isn't for people like them. And, and they mean, you know, that I'm a, I'm a person who, I'm, I'm a bad person or I, 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 whatever they might mean by this reality. They're saying that church isn't for them because they are so bad. But it, it shows the total ignorance of what the gospel message is about. That is a clue that the church has done a terrible job at letting people, letting people know what the church gathers for. That is, we have done a terrible job at getting the gospel message out. It's a total ignorance of that message because the truth but the reality is, church isn't for them because they have no idea how bad they are. They have no idea how bad they really are. They think, I don't go to church, that's for the good people. They have no idea how bad they really are. The truth is that church isn't for them. They won't see how bad they are. And oftentimes, the hurdle to faith in Christ is the inability to see and confess how bad off we really are. They're looking at this hurdle as, I've got, to, I've got to get good. I've got to get good so that I can impress God. And the hurdle for Christianity is not getting over and becoming good. The hurdle for Christianity is finally laying yourself low and saying, there's a hurdle I can't, I can't make on my own. Most religions are climb your way up religions. They're not mercy religions, but get-to-work religions. The gospel, however, is a gospel of grace. The incredible reality of the gospel is that when you finally get your eyes opened to the desperate state that you are in, that's when you're in the spot for Christ, for God to lift you up. Then you are the humbled one who then becomes exalted. When you are Getting to the place of admitting your sin, confessing it, turning from it, hating your sin, killing it, running away from your sin. At the lowest point of seeing yourself in the light of who you really are, that is the moment when you are in the position for God to lift you up. Are you more caught up in your religious goodness than in confessing what keeps you from God? The good news is that this is the morning for you to lay down your pride and look to the cross. 1 John 1.9 is beautiful. It says, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The tax collector is forgiven because God is a merciful God. If we admit our sins, they lay us low. This is the reality of my life before a holy God. God is the one who can pick us back up again. And we know this because he has revealed the way in which he's going to do this. The way in which he has done it. He sent his son. Going through the gospel of Luke. Jesus Christ comes down and he lives the righteous life you should have lived. He obeys. He fulfills the law. He loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loves his neighbor as himself. He keeps all the Ten Commandments. He earns righteous. He earns a righteous relationship with God. And yet, what does he get? He dies on the cross. He goes to the cross, not for his own sin, but for the sins of the world. Christ goes to the cross, Scripture tells us. So that everyone like this tax collector, laying themselves out before God. This is the reality of who I am. I have not lived up to the standard. I have not done even what I want to do, let alone what God, what you wanted me to do. I am at the end of my rope. I have no way to climb back up. That sinner is the one who is then invited to look to Christ. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus and what he has done. Look to the forgiveness that he provides and find forgiveness and restoration. We can be bold at confessing our sins and falling upon the mercy of God because we know that Christ's blood is on the altar. His sacrifice was a perfect once for all sacrifice. That's why we celebrate communion every Sunday here at First Christian Church. This is the broken body and the shed blood that is too great for us to not focus on every time we get together. Do you know yourself to be this broken tax collector? Do you show up? Do you hesitate at coming, you know, to hesitate getting with God because, well, I haven't, I haven't prayed enough or I haven't been good enough or God doesn't want to talk to me because I, I, haven't, I haven't done everything right this week. You ever think that? Sometimes I get so goofy in my head I think God doesn't want to hear from me because of the week I've had. That's the Pharisee thinking. The tax collector is the one who says, you know what, the week I've had, this is when God wants to hear from me most. Call out to him. This is what the good news of the gospel is for. Do you know yourself to be the broken tax collector? Then rejoice. There is a substitute. There is a wrath-appeasing sacrifice in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be the one who goes home justified. Not because you're the Pharisee touting your great works, but because of the works of Jesus Christ. Trust in Him today. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see both things this morning. Bring conviction in our lives over our own sinfulness, God, that we would hate it, that we would turn from it, that we would run from it, that we would seek to kill it, to get rid of it from our lives. Give us eyes to see that reality. And God, give us eyes to see the glorious good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's good news. That's good news. And I pray that everyone in this room this morning would know that gospel to be the good news that it is for them.
We come trusting you, looking to you, not ourselves in our own performance, but the work of Christ on our behalf. We pray these things in his name. Amen.